Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we try and shine a bit of light on stories which we think are important but are largely underreported by other parts of the media. We also pick our heroes and villains of the week. I'm delighted to be joined by two guests, David Goodhart, author of bestseller The Road to Somewhere on Populism and who advises at the think tank The Policy Exchange and delighted to be joined by Charlotte Pickles, who is Unheard's managing editor. Big job, Charlotte. Hello Hello. to both of you. Welcome. How are you both today? Fine. Good. Enjoying the summer weather? Are you really? I feel like we've had too much summer now. Mm, I don't think you can have enough. I'm just saying that because I'm grumpy and I'm Scottish and I'm just not built to cope with this weather. Use the rain. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> if it's not dreek, I'm not, it's not working for me. Right, um, Charlie, we're going to go to you for your first underreported story. My underreported story today is the Mexico elections, which are going to happen this Sunday, 1st of July. And the country is going to go to the polls to elect a new Congress, Um, and also the new president. And what's particularly interesting is that Mexico has had a a fairly, fairly stable history um, for many decades of electing kind of centre, perhaps even slightly centre-right, often more technocratic individuals. And what the polls are showing at the moment is that we're probably going to see a victory for Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador, who is a populist, uh, quite left-wing candidate. He's run, uh, this is his third time he's running for president, but this time it looks like he is going to win. And we've really seen very little about it in the UK press. There's been a bit more in America, but but not very much No, here. I mean, this is literally the, the, the first I've, I've heard of it, which is extraordinary. And it's fascinating because there are actually quite a lot of parallels between um, what's happening in Mexico and, I guess, the reasons why why we may be seeing this victory for a populist uh, party and what's happening in Western democracies as we're seeing this kind of populist uh, sweep uh, uh, going through places like Germany and France and obviously we've seen America and Italy and Spain. Um, And there are three particularly interesting things which I I think it's worth us just uh, mentioning. So this candidate, uh, Obrador, um, is not from the political elite. He's very much places himself as a kind of outsider, if you like. What's his background? Uh, so um, he was formerly the mayor of, uh, I think, Mexico City. He's run before, but he's from, um, I think it's the south or certainly a tiny little area in Mexico, kind of not from one of the big cities, you know, not being in the big kind of corporate sort of um, uh, political world in the traditional sense of what we've seen in Mexico. Um, and he, yeah, part of his platform um, is this kind of, uh, backlash against what he calls the mafia of power. So this is the kind of elite that run the country uh, very much not in the interests of many ordinary Mexicans. And of course, that's one of the big narratives here. And and the three driving forces, I think, are security. I mean, most people, even if you don't know a lot about Mexico, will be very aware of um you know, the, the kind of appalling scale of violence. And um, o- only in May, so a couple of months ago, um, we had the highest level of homicides, almost 3,000 deaths, murders in a single month. Wow. So security is a huge, huge issue. Um, and obviously this is all about the drug cartels and organised crime. And, and actually in the run-up to the election, we've seen over 100 politicians murdered, um, which is by the cartels and organised crime. Um, And I think there is a slight parallel in Europe around worries about things like security in terms of terrorism, um, immigration, you know, all of this gets very blown up into a a quite uh, big conversation amongst populist parties. The second issue is poverty and inequality, which 
you know, we talk about all, all the time, the time. Yep. all the time. Big, big um, theme. And again, in Mexico, a very different scale by their own measure. 50% of Mexicans still live in poverty. But this links into the whole capitalism agenda. And actually, we all know about NAFTA because President Trump can't shut up about it. Um, but NAFTA hasn't been as good for Mexico as people make out. And it really shows the limitations of free trade because, yes, it's generated wealth, but that wealth has gone to a small number of people. It's not been distributed as exactly. a common theme about the the... The, the, but, the flaws of capitalism that we talk about a lot. I mean, one of the exactly. differences with Mexico, surely, is that they had essentially a one-party state for about 50 years after the Second World War. Um, you know, the, what was it, the party of... PRI, yeah. yeah Institutionalised revolution. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this may, may also be a kind of interesting and possibly quite sort of healthy development in terms of developing a more pluralistic party system in Mexico. I mean, could that... Could there be something good to be said about... Uh... I mean, I think anywhere where you can, you have you know, more candidates, a greater amount of democracy has to be a good thing. I mean, the PRI uh, lost, actually, for a period anyway. Um, I think it was shortly after the... the maybe around the 2000, something like that. So, so you know, Me- Mexico is a democracy in that sense. But I think what's interesting is that um, there is this parallel with the West. You know, we think of Mexico as being, you know, so very different. And, you know, kind of we're used to, I think, seeing more autocratic regimes. You know, we're used to seeing... Kind Kind of There's a cliche populist. about South exactly. American uh, And Mexico demo- hasn't really democracy. fitted that, I yeah. think, to date. But, but, you know, there are real risks here that Mexico is going to now go down a more Venezuela-style line. And, and just briefly, the third point, which I think we can also see comparisons, is that it, there's a big backlash against corruption. And Mexico has huge issues with corruption, you know, and, and the PRI uh, has had big problems and, you know, senior level people um, involved. And, you know, the, the quotes, ordinary people, families in Mexico have had enough. And I think that's what we're seeing in the West. And David, as somebody who has thought deeply on populism, what's your sort of take on this? Is this another uprising of, of, a, of a populist revolution? Yeah, I mean, I think it may, may be rather a good thing. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of what we call populism is perfectly legitimate kind of rebalancing of the political scales. I mean, we have had in most Western countries in the last 30, 40 years, uh, liberalism in its various forms, economic liberalism or social cultural liberalism, has won every single argument. And we're we're now seeing a pushback against that, which is which is not a problem. This is democracy working. <laughs> where where you know, where that the double liberalism has not been working for people and it seems it hasn't been working for at least large minorities, if not majorities in many countries, then people are using, you know, the one domain in our um, in our hyper-liberal, hyper-competitive societies, the one domain in life where everybody is equal is the political domain. We all have one vote. We know whether we're Bill Gates or uh, uh, a um, a street sweeper, um, and people are very aware of that. And they're, and they're also, and what is one of the factors behind Brexit, I think, is the feeling that the democratic that the the democratic space has been narrowing. I mean, you know, you know, all of the things that are taken out of the normal democratic conflict by WTO committees or the European Union, or indeed by the by the by the choice of democratic politicians, the independence of the Bank of England, much more judicial activism, Human Rights Act, and so on. Now, all of these things may be legitimate in their own right, but but they do narrow the the democratic contest and people and I think Brexit is an example people have said no you know we value actually you know particularly the people who are not successful perhaps in the economy and in their professional lives they value the the fact that that, it, that politics gives them equal voice with everybody else well certainly the very interesting thing about Brexit was that people clocked very very quickly that 
because their vote counted, they came out and mm. voted. I mean, Sunderland is the absolute sort of classic for that. I mean, while I probably have a slight disagreement with you, um, David, is I, I don't think a lot of people, I think for a lot of people, obviously, they, they felt a big kind of constitutional constraint because of um, the EU. But I think for a lot of people as well, they were just very frustrated with how politics and decisions and how the economy was working kind of affected their lives and their um, communities. I think that was, you know, I think people legitimately, I think that's probably, that fuels a lot of this sort of, um, this whether you call it revolution, whether you call it populism, people genuine in very simple terms do not feel politics and the economy works for them. Yeah, and they hadn't had a chance to complain about that in domestic politics because all the parties are essentially the same on many of the issues that they felt most strongly about. They didn't have a choice. When it came to the Brexit vote, I agree, a lot of the motivation may have been domestic, but the point is they had a choice. So what is it, three, four million of the 17 point whatever million people who voted for Brexit had not voted in the preceding four or five general elections. Well, absolutely. It gave, it gave them that opportunity. But last word to you, um, Charlie, on this. So your prediction is that there will be this this sort of big moment of change. What do you think that change will deliver? I think there are real risks with it. And, you know, I wholeheartedly agree that people should have a say. I don't think people just felt like they weren't being included, whether that's in Mexico, whether it's in Spain or Italy or France or the UK or wherever. I think they haven't been included. I think there has been an unbelievable arrogance amongst elites and people who are doing well from globalisation, which is exactly one of the issues in in Mexico with the free trade agreement, um, who have just sort of ignored the fact that genuinely people are suffering. And so... I think it's, I agree with David, I think it's a good thing that people are being able to air their grievances. They're being given a chance to reject the status quo, which quite patently isn't working for them. But I think the risk with some of these populist figures is that they don't really have the solutions. And that's what that's what we need to see. And if Mexico did go down the road and, you know, there's all sorts of kind of issues around fake news and problems in, in Mexico in the run up to the uh, election, a whole other story, but at the moment... But there is a lot being made of the links between uh, this potential new president and uh, Venezuela and the late Hugo Chavez. And we know what's happening in Venezuela, and that is not a good thing. Mm. Well, I think that's often the the problem with populism. It, it, it sounds amazing, but then it's actually very difficult to, 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 to deliver things. And of course, they're going to have a big wall to contend with as well, um, if that ever gets built. Well, Trump's going to meet his equivalent. <laughs> that is going to be fascinating. Well, we'll definitely keep a watching eye on that. Now, David, we're going to come to you for your underreported story. Yeah, well, this in a way is um, looking at things sort of the other end of the telescope and suggesting that actually the status quo is in some ways working better than much of the narrative, either the mainstream narrative or indeed the populist narrative would have us believe. And uh, I say that having read a story uh, in The Times at the end of last week uh, that I didn't see picked up um, uh, too much elsewhere, which is that, that actually the, the UK benefit system welfare system is working pretty well and is highly redistributive. Um, uh, it's more redistributive than the Swedish welfare system. Uh, admittedly, it has higher levels of, of primary inequality to, to rebalance, as it were. Um, but this, this, it was a survey done by the ONS, the uh, statistics body, which found that uh, prior to the redistribution by the state, the, uh, the gap in incomes between the top 20% of earners and the bottom 20% of earners earners was 12 times. That's an average. Obviously, it excludes the, I mean, the, the super rich and so on. That's an average of the top 
20% and the bottom 20% 12 times. But after redistribution and, and benefits and so on, the difference was, was just four times between the, the bottom 20% and the top 20% of our society. And what was uh, this time scale? Um, I mean, this is now. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a survey based, I think, on... Um, on Five, ten thousand households. Um, so it, it's looking at uh, the situation today, um, and um, it also points out, as as is often pointed out, that um, there's a sort of there's a kind of paradox in a way about the fact that that income inequality has become such a big issue just in the last. I mean, it, of course, it's always it's a permanent issue in particularly in. A, societies like ours that are relatively unequal <clears throat> compared to others and indeed compared to our own relatively recent past. Uh, it's always been an issue, but it's become a much bigger issue for for for, for, um, for various reasons, I think, in the last few years. Um, you know, the Thomas Piketty book, the way the extra, extraordinary amount of attention that got and so on. And yet inequality has not changed. If, if anything, it's gone down somewhat in the last 10 years. That's partly because of the economic crisis. I mean, economic crises usually, um, they, they reduce incomes overall, but they also narrow the gap between the top and the bottom. That's partly, and particularly in our economy, because we have a lot of people working in highly paid service sectors like the financial sector. So bonuses are cut when when financial and other economic activity. It would be nice to have a better way to sort of even out society than massive yeah. crashes. But actually, but the point of this survey is it shows we do actually have a pretty good way of doing it in the mainstream. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, but what about wealth inequality? Um, and it's true, wealth inequality um, can be higher. Um, however, in international comparison, we do pretty well on wealth inequality, precisely because of the declining in recent years, but the relatively high level of home ownership in the UK plus uh, funded pension schemes means that actually wealth inequality in Britain is lower than it is in, in many other comparable countries. Charlie, you do a lot of work um, on looking at uh, sort of all of this issue. What, what, what's your take on this? I think um, I think we do forget the job that uh, the social security, welfare, whatever you want to call it, benefit system does in terms of redistributing um, income and actually um, yeah, I think it will be interesting to see what those numbers look like once all the welfare cuts have come in um, and, and once universal credit is ruled out exactly um, and so I think you know it kind of as a point in time measure um, it is a good you know it's a good observation to make that actually income inequality is not as bad as people make out. And, and actually, David's point that it's actually marginally better now than it was. I disagree slightly on the wealth inequality question. And I think this is really where the problem lies. Um, and, you know, yes, we may fare not too badly in international comparisons, but it's still pretty awful. And we've done a lot, lot of work on this, as you say, it unheard. And I think it's something like the, the top 10% wealthiest own something like the 45% of the wealth in this country and the bottom half own something like 10%. So, you know, this is a real issue. And and I think the, the particularly important and worrying thing about wealth inequality versus income inequality is, of course, the wealth is the thing you fall back on. You know, if you, if you lose your job, then, you know, having some savings, having some assets, not pensions, because you can't access pensions um, immediately, but having some assets is what protects you if you lose your income. Absolutely. I mean, I remember speaking to um i mean this was actually just before that the whole food bank thing was like a big thing being reported and went to and um, visit one and actually a lot of the people who were there 
you know, they were not sort of down and out people. They were saying, I've just lost my job, but I had nothing in reserves. I literally had nothing. So that just, you know, that losing my jobs, that can, that sort of gap before I could get um, the, the benefits, that's the thing that's tipped me over. Like, people have no savings. And I suppose I, where I think I would probably push back a bit as well and, uh, you know, we are living in an era of how people are feeling as well. And I think for a lot of people, they are working, but they don't feel they have enough um, you know, to, to get by on sort of in-work poverty is quite a big issue now. Um, people have felt, well, not just felt, but people at the Resolution Foundation have sort of said that the there has been a wage freeze for, for a lot of people um, as the cost of living is going up. Uh, and the cuts to benefits, we will have to see how that, that kind of... Um, I mean, I don't think people necessarily feel that we are living in a great age of... Um, income inequality and I completely agree with you about wealth and actually that's one of the things which is of course driving our own version of populism in this country people want to buy a house that is the that is the tangible asset that people want to have in their lives and so many people can't have that yeah I, I think that is true although the housing issues are much bigger one in London the southeast than it is uh, elsewhere, um, I mean, I think in, in other parts of the country, it's often other issues related to transport infrastructure. You know, the ability to sort of get into Manchester from Burnley or wherever. There is now a direct connection, actually, but I mean, for, um, that's only quite recent. I mean, there. Are, Let's there be are, honest, the transport is not great, like in terms of the infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, you, you, in many parts of the country, been. you have to own a car, which is which is not the case for us in London. Um, so yes, I mean, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that everything is perfect, but I think it's also useful every now and then to to, to register these sort of basic social facts that many people are completely ignorant of. And David, would you still say, are you a supporter then of the the welfare state and and this something which does redistribute um, income to people? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, the welfare state has has many failings, and it can create dependency, and it. Um, it, you know, it's very difficult to design uh, a welfare state that is both sort of fair, not too costly for for, for, for taxpayers, and also not um, disincentivizing people from um, from from you know from individual responsibility. Um, and, I, and I don't think we always get that right. Um, but you know, as as my cutting suggests, we, we do get it more right than we think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would call myself a social democrat. I think I, I would prefer to live in a more equal society. Um, but um, again, we need to actually look at the facts some of the time. And it, uh, the basic story in Britain is that inequality increased quite significantly in the late 80s, early 90s, and has basically been flatlining ever since. It goes down a little bit, goes up a little bit. Um, um, it is true that... Uh, Poverty uh, has did shoot up in the 1980s and uh, has stayed. I think around um, around 20% of the population live in in relative poverty. Um, but um, the incomes of the very poorest have also been rising in in recent years. I mean, as so has we, the cost of living, though, as well. Yeah, only relatively slowly. I think their incomes have been rising um, f- uh, faster than the cost of living 
Um, so, you know, things like the, the food bank issue is, is partly an administrative one. I mean, the fact that, that people do not, this gap that you mentioned between, you know, the, the welfare state kicking in after you lose a job, I mean, that takes too long. Uh, and these are administrative issues that, I've that can met, and should be sorted out. Like I've met care workers who do an amazing, important job. And they're, they're working really, really hard and they're still going to food banks. And, and I think this is, this is I think, one of the greatest myths that um, people hold about the welfare state, which is that the welfare state is for people who are out of work. Yes, and, yes. And actually, if you look at um, the generosity of the benefit system, um, if you're a single male, unemployed, dependent on welfare, you're probably in a pretty poor position. And, and actually, it's single men who are most likely to be in destitution. And that is what a Joseph Roundtree Foundation report recently found. Um, but the problem, Aisha, exactly what you've said, which is that we forget the the huge group of people who are working. And, and, and that, I don't think, is a question of the welfare state in the purest sense of the benefit system, that's a question of the labour market we now have. And actually, are we comfortable having insecure, low-paid, low-skilled work making up such a large proportion of our labour market and a disproportionate proportion? If you if you compare yeah. it to other countries, you know, we have a very heavy uh, amount of these, these insecure, low-paid jobs. And that's what we need to be yeah, focusing I on. I completely agree. And this is something that James Bloodworth, who is an unheard um, contributor, he's, he's written this book, Hired, where he went undercover. It's definitely worth checking out. He's done a lot of work and will be doing more very interesting work uh, for unheard But that is this. the UK growth model. The UK growth model is a flexible labour market with very high labour market participation, topped up with very high immigration. That is our growth model. And it is absolutely no... Why people go on about the productivity mystery. I have no idea. There's no mystery about it at all. It's because we do, we deliberately create lots of low productivity jobs. <laughs> oh, and and we also watch Love Island. Well, that's just my excuse anyway. So there we go. Right. Thank you uh, for that story. That was really, really um, interesting, David. Very, very good discussion. And I'm going to hold you to that. We have to have more discussions about facts, not feelings. <laughs> it's very, very important. Right. Um, we are going to now move on to my favourite section of the show, which is Heroes and villains. And I'm going to start with um, my hero of the week, who is a young woman uh, called Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is being labelled the new progressive star of the Democrats. And uh, she went from being a cocktail waitress to insurgent Democrat victor. She stood in New York against um, a very established Democrat incumbent and she one a fantastically interesting story she was also trained uh, by bernie sanders which i find really fascinating because some of the bernie sanders people have been working quite closely with the organization connected to jeremy corbyn called momentum it's all about sort of training up these very very hyper local people again echoing the narrative that you talked about charlie earlier people who are not part of this political elite the rise of the outsiders people who are of the people and she seems like an absolute breath of fresh air. She's very, very presentable, hugely passionate, very, very articulate, very spirited. And as somebody who really, really wants a democratic resurgence, there has been no signs of life in the Democrat Party in America since Trump won. Um, and this just gives me probably a naive bit of hope. What, what do you guys think? I, I think it's um, I think it's a great... Uh, 
quite inspiring story of this, um, as you say, kind of relatively young 28 uh, woman, um, I think uh, Puerto Rican American. So, yes. and it's a, uh, it's a, um, their equivalent of a constituency. So it's, it's an area with a very high proportion um, of ethnic minority um, voters. And, and I think it's great that there's this, this person who's, who's genuinely, as you said, breathing some life into politics. But I don't think we should get too excited that this means that the, Demo- you know, the Democratic <laughs> know. Party is, is suddenly going to you know, come back to life because there's actually been, if you look at the kind of comments Nancy Pelosi and others have made, it's quite, they've been quite dismissive of this, that, you know, oh, well, you know, it's, it's sort of a blip kind of thing. But what I think is really interesting is actually less the state of the Democratic Party and more whether this is another example of where people... Um, citizens are just fed up of anything that looks like the centre ground, you know, that hasn't delivered them. Exactly. And, you know, it's interesting to reflect back to when Trump won. A lot of people at the time said, had um, Sanders been the Democrat candidate instead of Hillary, then actually he may well have beaten Trump. And I think it's all about the people who are speaking to a different section of society in a way that actually enables them to relate to politics again. Well, I completely agree. And I think it's it, it kind of chimes in with a sort of Jeremy Corbyn sort of phenomenon we're seeing here. Now, uh, David, you have a very interesting hero of the week. Uh, yeah, my hero of the week is uh, Andrew O'Hagan, um, a Scottish writer who um, wrote a few weeks ago this extraordinary uh, piece in the London Review of Books, you know, a very left of centre um, intellectual journal, a literary intellectual journal, um, about the Grenfell disaster absolutely trashing the mainstream narrative on Grenfell that this was somehow an act of uh, class war, all these, all these um, double-barrelled named uh, Kensington councillors who were utterly negligent of uh, these uh, poor minority people mainly living in this uh, appalling block that uh, as a result of their negligence uh, burnt down and then they were too incompetent to do anything about it in the, in the days after the fire. He absolutely demolishes that mainstream narrative. Um, and um, I, I'm very glad he's done so. I, 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 I knew something about what was going on um, because I knew people who lived in the area and, and indeed I knew one of the councillors and I was getting a completely different account of what was actually happening. I mean, the, the council was not absent in those first few days. It was absolutely everywhere. Um, uh, um, more to the point, all many of the kind of local little NGOs that were often doing a lot of the frontline work were all funded mainly or entirely by the council. Uh, the council workers were, were often told not to wear any uh, identifying uh, clothing because they, after the first couple of days they were often getting beaten up by um, by angry people. Um, now, I'm not saying people don't have... have How many ha- people were beaten up? I'm interested. I didn't know about that. Um, uh, th- th- there was a lot of violence uh, around the time. Um, you know, m- meetings were being stormed um, and um, it, there was a very, very angry... Um, atmosphere. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't. Yeah, I mean, some of that anger is, is is understandable, but you've got to aim your anger at the right targets. Um, the reason why, by the way, uh, this is relevant this week is because um, the 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 next issue of the London Review of Books has come out with various people, uh, particularly from 
uh, something called the Grenfell Action Group, which has been was one of the main organisers of, of um, extreme hostility to the council that was very successful in shaping the narrative that appeared across the media in the weeks afterwards. Um, they, they have responded to Andrew O'Hagan's piece uh, and their response, I, th- I, I mean, you can read it yourself, is absolutely feeble. Um, and uh, he, he then responds to their response. I mean, their, their, their response is essentially, well, you know, we're allowed to be, um, you know, very, very political, um, you know, and who are you to tell us that we can't be? But I mean, he, as, he, as he points out, they were talking into an echo chamber. They, they mm-hmm. were very angry people who were talking basically to themselves. They didn't have the skills of a proper advocacy, advocacy group um, in relation to, to the council. And this is this is not a monstrous council at all. It was one of the best-run councils in Britain, and it, and its right. services for poorer um, people in, in the borough were amongst the, the best, if not the best, in London. Um, well, I mean... I mean, this is a very uh, interesting piece, very um, divisive. Some a hero to you, a villain uh, to to many others. It's interesting that the um, quite a lot of people have have actually labelled O'Hagan as an armchair critic. And what do you mean armchair of... critic? He spent a year, you know, in in the shadow of the tower, well, working I'm, I'm, on this. He, um, this is what yeah. a lot of people on the ground who have also been living through it as well. Yeah. There's also quite a lot of a critique on his piece, questioning the accuracy of quite a lot of his piece. Look, I think well, the truth. I, I, but but this is the point. This is why he's such a hero. Is that if you read the responses in, the, in London, they are feeble. That none of them. I mean, they're entirely well, emotional. One, one, they are entirely emotional. One, read them. One person's feeble is another person's, you know, fierce. And you know, I think this is obviously such a hugely emotive issue. This was a an incident which really shamed our country, and you can understand why people were so upset. And maybe you're right. Maybe but I think maybe it is these, shameful maybe on the part people, of the media. The media there was absolutely David, dreadful groupthink. And now, and now, most of the rest of the world have bought that that story. You, you know, can, oh, this is class ridden well, Britain, double barreled named councillors a, a, who don't care about killing ethnic minority. Well, Council house there dwellers. was also it was how people. There were the facts of, of what happened. That was a terrible, terrible fire. We are only now beginning to unpick why this happened. There's lots of complicated reasons. Um, a very emotive issue, as we are uh, proving. I just suppose you're probably right in some ways that these people were not very elegant advocates, but that's who they are. You know, they're kind of ordinary people who were caught up in this. They probably never thought. No, 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 be, no, you're quite wrong. Um, they were not ordinary people caught up. They had been banging away. They were a very, very, you know, political, closely knit political unit had been banging on for years and years well, and years. Well, I think there, there are, not, I mean, there's no, a diff- there are, different group. There yeah. are other people who yeah, are, are involved yeah. in that and they, who are n- not None of them, so far as I can see, are complaining about the well, piece. Charlie, final word from you. I mean, I think there is a lot of merit in um, Andrew Hagen's... Um, reporting and actually you know he did spend a year a year and a half whatever it was um well, it only happened a year ago looking, a year then <laughs> looking at it um and i think it's very easy to dismiss when it doesn't fit with our own kind of narrative on on how we feel and our own ideological perspective but it doesn't help anyone and actually we should be much more open to recognizing what really happened rather than you know pushing a political uh, or particular political ideological perspective but but actually for me you know the, the point that david makes at the end there which is that 
why on earth didn't the mainstream media do more work to understand what had actually happened rather than swallowing, you know, whole the narrative that that was created by a small group, which is not to say that some of that narrative wasn't right. Mm. But I think it's very dangerous when we when we have a media that doesn't go and properly do the investigative work that we should expect of them. Well, I mean, I think I think always just slagging off the media for not pushing the narrative that you want. Look, everybody has politicised this fire. This piece is a political piece. No, there was complete consensus until one or um, two columnists did did kind of raise questions about it, Simon Jenkins, I think. But essentially, this is the first time anyone has done a proper bit of original work and come to almost completely different conclusions. The other person that deserves credit, by the way, is the editor of the London Review Books, Mary K. Wilmers. I mean, this is, like I said, a very left-wing magazine. And she had the balls to give 60,000 words, the entire issue, to this issue that was challenging a left-wing narrative. And I think she deserves a lot of credit for that. I think even the fact that calling it a left-wing narrative is is just completely the wrong way of looking at it. There shouldn't be a right-wing issue or a left-wing issue. This is about a horrific fire which completely, you know, shamed our nation where people died, families are going to be scarred, people are still not properly housed yet. And I think we all have to kind of chill our political bias, all of us, left, right, centrist, whatever, whether you've got a view on big state, small state, double barrel names, class war, you know, crushing this, whatever no, your I thing is. No, I disagree. You, you, One you narrative has absolutely dominated the story. I don't and think that's... this little pinprick yeah. of resistance to it, and it needs support. Uh, it has well, not been... The, the idea that it's going to be, it's all been e- even-handed, there was a kind of left-wing story. And there was a, no, where we, was the right-wing we, story? Well, there this, wasn't it one. Shouldn't and this about, isn't a right-wing story. It shouldn't be about a left-wing or right-wing story. It's a human story. It's about people yeah. who died. And it was manipulated by people, well, uh, absolutely appallingly. I, I, and there was a consensus, we, we utterly consensus. We will agree to disagree and now mm. <laughs> move on to Charlie, your villain of the week. I'm afraid this isn't going to be nearly as emotive as, uh, <laughs> as, as that discussion. But my villain uh, of the week, or I should probably say of several weeks, uh, is the accounting uh, company, the global company KPMG. Although if I was being fair, I might say that any of the big four uh, accountancy firms could could be villains. Um, but I've specifically chosen KPMG because um, about 10 days ago, maybe it was, um, the Financial Reporting Council came out, which is a kind of, um, uh, you know, they, they look at the quality of the audits that accounting firms do. And they came out and said half, fully half of KPMG's audits of businesses. So, you know, what's the financial health of the business? Are they accounting properly? Is there any fraud? All that kind of stuff. Half of those audits of the FTSE 350 were significantly flawed. Wow. Um, And, you know, KPMG were the people who audited Carillion months before it collapsed. Um, KPMG are also under, I think, several investigations, and maybe those investigations are finished, but have been under investigations in South Africa for their relationship with the Gupta family, um, as well as uh, the collapse of a South African bank recently where they audited it and didn't raise any questions. And I just think this is one of the great examples of the sort of crony capitalism um, and monopolisation that we've seen in our capitalist model because of course the problem is these accounting firms there's only four big accounting firms right and they are essentially what this is showing 
in hock with the businesses that they're supposed to be auditing, they get huge amounts of money from these businesses. They also sell their consultancy uh, to these same businesses. Yep. So where's the where's accountability? The neutrality? Where's no, the accountability? Absolutely. And, you know, like so much thing, you can, you, it now looks like you can pay to get the audit you want. Well, this was part of the problem with the financial crash. If we look at what happened uh, with the rating agencies, yep. um, who all gave these banks full, you know, full kind of, yes, these are great, all in good health, absolutely invest in them, buy their, their products, etc. And then they all suddenly collapsed and, and, yeah. and we all have suffered from it. And and I think we have to hold to account these people that are supposed to be yeah. Who is making going to sure audit we're safe. The auditors. Who exactly. Audit absolutely, the auditors? absolutely. Yeah. And they, they it feels like they're they're so big, they're this huge cartel, they're untouchable, there's no transparency. It's very, very difficult to really get into the guts of what's actually happening at these companies. And, and that's why we're hearing increasing calls now, uh, including from parliamentarians, uh, for actually the big four county firms to be broken up. And, yeah. and you know, unless they are not proving that they can improve their behaviour. So I'm not really sure what the alternative is. Well, I think, uh, you know, this huge monopoly that they have is incredibly, well, it's proved to be incredibly bad for, for business and gives capitalism a very, very uh, bad name. Right, I'm going to finish off on my villain of the week, which is a bit of a, a kind of a, a, a sort of, not just one person, it's a group, and it's where they're going to go next. It's the American Supreme Court. As somebody who is from a Muslim background, I, I was not surprised but profoundly depressed by the um, the non-Muslim Muslim ban, which basically they put in North Korea and Venezuela to get around the fact that it's, it's a non-Muslim ban, which is absolutely um, outrageous. And I think the repercussions will be um, really, really quite uh, depressing if you're uh, sort of a young Muslim person or you look like you could be a Muslim person. I think you're going to there's going to be profound repercussions. But I think looking at the future of the Supreme Court is going to be very interesting. There's a retirement, which means Trump can put in another person that he wants. And I think the next big issue coming down the track is going to be reproductive rights and the issue of abortion. What, what are our views on that? Um, ju- just r- remind me on the, the Muslim ban was not literally a ban on Muslim. It, it was a ban on countries that were not sufficiently in the eyes of the U.S., vetting um, citizens who might have been extremists travelling to the US. Is that right? I mean... Well, let's call this what it is. I mean, he said. Well, I mean, lots of Muslims are continuing to go to the US from those countries. It's it's sending out a big. He said it's a big signal for him to send to his base that he's he and he said in his campaign um, pledges that he wanted to basically crack down on on all Muslims coming down until we've sorted things out. But what do we think about the future of the Supreme Court? Where the where's the politics going to go? Where is this kind of huge culture war that's been inflamed in America going to go? Do you think abortion will be next on the on the agenda? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. This is already what what people are talking about. You know, this is if you think about, I think something like 80 percent of white evangelicals voted for Trump. You know, abortion was a massive issue for them Um, and they will be expecting their payback. You know, this is this is the opportunity for Trump now to reward um, the support of the evangelicals well, that, uh, on yeah. an issue that well, they that, were very passionate about. But but you know, I, he's I, not passionate about it. Though. That's the interesting he's not, thing. He's, he's not an evangelical. I mean, he's flip flop between being a, a Republican yeah. and a Democrat. I mean, Trump is a Trump is a Trump is Trump. You know, he's not. He, he's, he's a fine weather ideal. friend on these exactly. issues. Exactly. He? He, he is. He wants the power. You know, he he is focused on um, success by his own definition. But actually, you know, for all the women living in the United States who, for whatever reason, and I think it's, 
you know, who really wants to have an abortion? You know, who wakes up and thinks, you know, what I'd really like to do is have an abortion? You know, people are, women are put in positions where for whatever their reason is, they feel they need to have an abortion. And the idea that you should take that right away from them, to me, is abhorrent. And, you know, I am not pro-abortion, which is what a lot of pro-lifers throw as a title at at, at people. I am pro-choice. Therefore, by definition, I am more than happy for someone to be against abortion. I'm more than happy for someone to say, I would never have an abortion. I don't want to force an abortion on anyone, but I do believe, like I do in most areas of life, that people should have choice and they should be able to you know, live their lives as they see fit. And women should have agency over their bodies. Well, human beings should have agency over their bodies. Well, look, on that note, we will uh, leave it there. Thank you so much, uh, Charlie and David. What a fascinating discussion it's been. We'll definitely have to have you um, back on. It's been really interesting. Um, Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to the Unheard weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. Do join us again next week. 